This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello, I hope you've had a good week and your practice has gone well. Before we start, let's consider our motivation as usual and set a vast and beneficial one if possible. That is, may we become enlightened so we can help all suffering beings be free of their suffering and especially may they attain enlightenment, the state free of all suffering forever. What a wide-ranging and extremely beneficial motivation this is because it aims to benefit all the living beings there are everywhere. However, this, as you can see, is very, very vast, and even our imaginations cannot cope with the infinite number of beings there are. So, if you find this motivation too much for you, at least make your purpose for participating today your own enlightenment and freedom from all suffering. Thank you. We're discussing a text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, by the Tibetan Buddhist master Nam Kapel. In that text, we've reached a section recommending that we develop what is called the five powers, which includes the power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of familiarity. We've covered all of these, and last week, while talking about the power of familiarity, we looked at a study on positive emotions, by one of the leading experts on the subject, Professor Barbara Fredrickson of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Let's briefly revisit what we went through in our last program and conclude the interview with Dr. Fredrickson. If you were with us, you may remember that she recommends that we become increasingly familiar with micro-moments of positive emotion because not only do they contribute to our momentary happiness, but repeated over time, bring resilience, resourcefulness, and long-term well-being. She's also found that when two people share a moment of positive emotion, not only do they experience biobehavioral synchrony, but also a synchrony in biochemistry. That is, their body language mirrors each other, there's a rise in unison in biochemicals in both bodies, and a similarity in neural firings. She says... A single emotion can roll like a wave through two or more brains and bodies at once. Now, this only happens when people are in real-time sensory connection. In other words, you're probably not going to get it when chatting to someone on the social media, for instance. Dr. Fredrickson says, When you and I are connecting, and I express a positive emotion, it can bring out the same emotion in you, which, as you express it, is going to amplify my emotion. A good feeling is reverberating or resonating between us. The term I've coined for this is positivity resonance. And that's the term she uses when communicating with her fellow scientists. But for the less prosaic amongst us, she calls these resonances micro-moments of love. She admits that her research has been influenced by the Buddhist meditations on loving-kindness, or, as she puts it, friendly feeling. Loving-kindness meditation unlocks all kinds of benefits, says Dr. Fredrickson. The data on that are clear. But the data also tell us 
that these benefits don't come just from the time you spend alone on the cushion. The way that your meditation practice changes your day-to-day connections with others appears to be key. I think of loving-kindness meditation as a preparatory activity that makes positive connections more likely. It's a means to another end, not an end in itself. And this is consistent with my reading of Buddhist psychology. Coming at love from an evolutionary psychologist's point of view, Dr. Fredrickson is interested in the role of emotion in human development over the whole history of mankind. She asks, how does positive emotion affect the heart and the white blood cells? And then goes on, in our lab, we take pairs of strangers and give them an icebreaker activity, a set of questions for both of them to answer, such as, if you could invite anyone to dinner, who would it be? It's an exercise developed to encourage disclosure, and we know that disclosure increases levels of the hormone progesterone, as well as people's degree of behavioral synchrony with one another. At the end of the study, participants often say, I felt energized. That's because something was changing physically in them. There's a cascade of biochemicals running through your body during a good conversation. For example, you release more oxytocin, a neuropeptide associated with intimacy. There's also clear evidence of neural synchrony between people. When you and I are really attuned to one another, our brain activity becomes highly similar. The researcher who's done the most work on this is Yuri Hassan at Princeton University. He says that speaking and listening are not two separate acts. Rather, communication is a single act performed by two brains. Dr. Fredrickson goes on to talk about vagal tone, the degree to which breathing patterns affect heart rate. When someone with high vagal tone exhales, the heart slows down a little, but in someone with low vagal tone, the heart and breathing are not much connected. She has found that the higher the vagal tone, the more enjoyable we find social interactions. People with autism, for example, have very low vagal tone, and also show a lack of interest in social engagement, she says. Higher vagal tone boosts our interest in others and seems to quell our fear of meeting new people. Scientists have called it a key part of our innate social engagement system. But vagal tone is not a constant. It varies like cholesterol levels. And this is one reason why we should cultivate moments of positivity resonance. But she's also claimed that lack of positivity resonance is more damaging to health than smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol excessively, or being obese. It's based on findings by a researcher named Julian Holt Lundstad and her colleagues at Brigham Young University, says Fredrickson. Her paper on this is making major ripples all over the social sciences because it suggests that we're not targeting all the right behaviors when it comes to improving people's health. We need to focus also on creating more positive social connections. But coming up with ways to do that has been vexingly hard, I think because we don't fully understand what drives social engagement. Setting up bingo games in retirement communities, for instance, doesn't work, because just being around people isn't enough. I'm hoping that my work on positivity resonance will help us discover ways to improve social engagement. An article on the website of The Guardian looks at the work of Holt Lundstad and her colleagues. It is called, With a little help from your friends, you can live longer. 
Written by the Guardian science correspondent Ian Sample, it says this, A life of booze, fags and slothfulness may be enough to earn your doctor's disapproval, but there's one last hope, a repeat prescription of mates and good conversation. A circle of close friends and strong family ties can boost a person's health more than exercise, losing weight or quitting cigarettes and alcohol, psychologists say. Social people seem to reap extra rewards from their relationships by feeling less stressed, taking better care of themselves and having less risky lifestyles than those who are more isolated, they claim. A review of studies into the impact of relationships on health found that people had a 50% better survival rate if they belonged to a wider social group, be it friends, neighbors, relatives or a mix of these. The striking impact of social connections on well-being has led researchers to call on GPs and health officials to take loneliness as seriously as other health risks, such as alcoholism and smoking. We take relationships for granted as humans, says Julianne Holt-Lunstad, a psychologist at Brigham Young University in Utah. That constant interaction is not only beneficial psychologically, but directly to our physical health. Holt Lundstad's team reviewed 148 studies that tracked the social interactions and health of 308,849 people over an average of 7.5 years. From these, they worked out how death rates varied depending on how sociable a person was. Being lonely and isolated was as bad for a person's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic. It was as harmful as not exercising and twice as bad for their health as being obese. The study is reported in the journal PLOS Medicine. Holt Lundstad said friends and family can improve health in numerous ways, from help in tough times to finding meaning in life. When someone is connected to a group and feels responsibility to other people, that sense of purpose and meaning translates to taking better care of themselves and taking fewer risks. Holt Lundstad said there was no clear figure on how many relationships are enough to boost a person's health, but people fared better when they really felt lonely and were close to a group of friends, had good family contact, and had someone they could rely on and confide in. Writing in the journal, the authors point out that doctors, health educators, and the media take the dangers of smoking, diet, and exercise seriously and urge them to add social relationships to the list. A report by the Mental Health Foundation in May blamed technology and the pressures of modern life for widespread feelings of loneliness in all age groups across Britain. The survey of more than 2,200 adults found one in ten people often felt lonely and one in three would like to move closer to their family. Andrew McCulloch of the Mental Health Foundation said the latest study builds on work that links isolation to poor mental and physical health. He says, Trends such as increasing numbers of people living alone and the advent of new technologies are changing the way in which we interact and are leading both the young and old to experience loneliness. It is important that individuals and policymakers take notice of emerging evidence and of the potential health problems associated with loneliness. Dr. Fredrickson agrees. She says that the positivity resonance we experience with others is necessary 
It acts like a dose of nutrients, and we need it to survive. But contemporary culture encourages us to reach out through technology, she points out. Though email and texting and social media are great in many ways, they potentially have costs. In the future, I'd look, like to look at the bodily effects of communicating through electronic mediums versus face-to-face -face and see what the differences are. When we connect with people online, we certainly experience a lot of positive emotions, but maybe they're not reverberating and building off each other. Seeing you smile makes me happy in a subtle but perceptible way that may not occur when I just see the little smiley emoticon. What about FaceTime or Skype, where you can see the person's face? Fredrickson says, One of my colleagues has pointed out that with video chat, you can't quite establish true con eye contact because the camera is up here and the other person's eyes are below that on his or her screen. You see your friend or beloved looking down. I've encountered some research that makes me think this may be consequential. Without true eye contact, there's less facial mimicry. With less facial mimicry, there's less neural mimicry, and this cascade of biobehavioral synchrony is less likely to happen. Both people might be smiling, but they're not resonating. She goes on to say that although she has no data to prove it, she thinks that shared voice communication can lead to positivity resonance. A lot of emotion can be carried by the human voice, so you can pick up the phone and talk to each other, or, I guess, talk through FaceTime or Skype and still get into a shared emotional state, she says. I did a radio show once, and a blind man called in and said he could feel what other people were feeling. He didn't know how to describe it, but he claimed he actually experienced more connection with others now that he was blind, because he wasn't distracted by how people look. And what about the written word? When you read a letter from somebody who really understands you, you definitely feel valued and heard, Dr. Fredrickson says. What's missing is that the expression on your face isn't going to be mirrored in the other person's, and so the emotions can't feed off one another and grow. If there weren't something missing in a relationship by mail, people would never be drawn to meet in person. And usually, after all those impassioned messages, people do want to meet. She then addresses why mimicry and biological synchrony are so important. Think about the way birds fly together or fish swim in schools. We don't like to think of ourselves as animals, but we are. And when we are really attuned to another person, we take part in this almost imperceptible dance. Like a school of fish, we're joining up and swimming along together, and this can bring a powerful sense of oneness. Right now, we're studying whether experiencing shared positive emotions can unlock collective intelligence. In our experiment, participants are given trivia questions and have to figure them out together. They're encouraged either to brainstorm in a fun way and treat it as a game, or to treat it very seriously and mute their emotions. We're looking to see whether shared positive emotions help people come up with better answers. And when she's asked whether self-reporting of feelings is as precise as she gets in measuring her experiments, she says, We use both self-reports and objective measures, because you can't study emotions without asking people how they feel, but you also can't believe 100% of what they say. And she also admits that although she tries to test midlife adults 
and community populations, most of her research has been done on college students. For convenience, a lot of my graduate students will study peers because it doesn't require external grant money, she says. As long as funding is sparse, we will continue when necessary to study college students. Even when I study a broader population, it is still within the predominantly white town in which I live. These studies need to be replicated in other contexts and other cultures. But we've got to start somewhere. And that's Dr. Bra Barbara Fredrickson, the keen and distinguished professor at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she was talking in this interview to Angela Winter, as reported on the website thesunmagazine.org. From this research, we can see the importance of familiarizing ourselves with positive emotions, and particularly with bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment to benefit all living beings. This focus on bodhicitta is the thrust of Nam Karpel's commentary on the power of familiarity. So this is the section on the integrated practice of one lifetime, which essentially encompasses the five powers we talked about. In his commentary, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, the spiritual director of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, has this to say about the five powers. Here is a technique for making your life always happy, but not the usual kind of hallucinated happiness which is excited with desire, pride and so on. As soon as you investigate the nature of this kind of hallucinated happiness, you discover that it is only suffering. Here we are talking about real inner peace and happiness, which bring satisfaction and fulfillment and make your life meaningful. The technique for achieving this is the five powers, integrating the practice of the five powers into one lifetime. When you live in this practice of the five powers 24 hours a day, every single thing you do, whatever it may be, is only for the sake of other sentient beings who are numberless and who want happiness and do not want suffering just as you do. Sentient beings need your help and don't want you to harm them. Like you, they only want others to benefit and help them and don't want even the slightest harm. When you practice the five powers, every single thing you do is only for numberless sentient beings and therefore Everything you do only becomes the cause for achieving the peerless happiness of full enlightenment. This is the greatest profit that can be achieved with this life, and therefore this practice is the most beneficial for achieving peerless happiness. It means that every single action you do, whether it is meditation and prayers or doing your job, becomes the cause of happiness for all sentient beings. Since it is the best thing for all sentient beings, Naturally, it is also the best thing for you. This means that you will have the best, happiest life now and also the best, happiest life in the future, like the sun shining in this world and eliminating all darkness. Practicing this integration of the five powers into one lifetime is also the best preparation for the happiest death. It makes even the end of your life the happiest. When death comes, it will be the happiest death because you've done this practice during your lifetime and also you will find it so easy to, to practice the five powers near the time of death. And this is the best psychology of all and the best, deepest meditation. There are five powers to be applied during this life and also 
five powers to be applied at the time of death. The five powers at the time of death are a mind-training transference of consciousness practice for directing your mind to its new rebirth. So, the next section in Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun deals again with the five powers, but now on how to apply them at the time of death, as mentioned by Lama Zopramshay. Remember that Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun is Namkar Pal's commentary on another text titled The Seven Points of Mind Training. So when Namkar Pal talks about the text, he's referring to the seven points of mind training. While when I speak about the text, I'm referring to mind training like the rays of the sun, because that is what we are following. I hope it doesn't confuse you. So now the text, that is mind training like the rays of the sun, reads, In relating these instructions on the five powers to the advice concerning what to do at the time of death, the text, and this is the seven points of mind training, says, The five powers themselves are the great vehicle's precept on the transference of consciousness. Cultivate these paths of practice. Now, Buddhism teaches that if we've not reached an experiential understanding of the nature of reality, we will go from life to life under the compulsion of our karma and afflictive emotions. We have no choice in this. Essentially, we will be reborn wherever our karma takes us. However, certain practices performed by a very highly realized being or a being karmically very close to us, can influence where we are reborn. For instance, if we are very devoted to a particular guru with great skill, that guru can do practices at the time of death that can change our coming rebirth. Perhaps we are destined through karma to be reborn as an animal, but by the kind intervention of our guru, that karma can be changed and we can take human rebirth again instead. There are certain practices a skilled person can do that will actually transfer a person's consciousness at the time of death, not to another rebirth in cyclic existence, but to what is known as a pure land. The most well-known pure land is Amitabha's pure land of Sukhavati, and this is the destination of the pure land Buddhist tradition. Actually, the pure land is not a place as such, but as Chagdad Rinpoche describes in his book, life in relation to death, it's an environment of pure wisdom awareness. In Tibetan Buddhism, such practices that transfer the dead person's consciousness to a pure, pure land are called poa. Chagdad Rinpoche writes, By successfully practicing this method known as poa, one bypasses the karmic destiny one faces in the bardo of becoming. That is, if we are, say, destined for birth as an animal in our next life, but we practice power at death time, or someone practices it for us, we can avoid that rebirth and instead be born into an environment of pure wisdom awareness. Traditionally, it is taught that once in this so-called pure land, we will not again be born in a suffering state, and we can stay there until we become enlightened. As Chagdad Rinpoche writes, the great result of poor accomplishment is liberation from cyclic rebirth and suffering. Now, if we cannot practice power or cannot find anyone accomplished enough to practice it for us, we can use the five powers at the time of death to transfer our consciousness to a pure land. And that is what is meant by the verse from Seven Points of Mind Training, 
The five powers themselves are the great vehicle's precept on the transference of consciousness. Cultivate these paths of practice. So now, to go through Namkapal's explanation of the five powers as applied to the time of death, the first, unlike the first in the integrated practice of a single life, is the power of the white seed. He writes, We should purify the misdeeds which will cause us suffering in the future by application of the four powers. This means the four purifying powers we have spoken about in previous programs. That's the power of regret or repentance, the power of the object, meaning correcting our broken relationship to the three jewels or to other sentient beings by taking refuge and generating bodhicitta, the power of the remedy, meaning doing a positive action to counter the misdeed, and the power of promise, as promising not to commit the misdeed again. Those are the four powers that purify misdeeds. Namkapal then continues, At the time of death, be fearless and free from sorrow, thinking, It's all right for me to die. It is extremely important not to hold on to anything that will be a source of attachment, but to offer all your possessions to the higher and lower fields of merit. There are many examples of incidents such as that concerning the bhikshu, whose body burned thrice simultaneously due to his attachment to his alms bowl at the time of death. Now, this refers to a monk who was so attached to his alms bowl that he was born almost immediately as a worm in the bowl after he died. There, he was overcome by the fire of anger. Then, when the monk's body was cremated, the bowl was burnt too and the worm died in the fire. The ex-monk's consciousness was then born in one of the hot hells. And in this way, due to attachment, it is said that the monk was thrice burned simultaneously. Namkapel continues, We should especially eliminate attachment to our bodies at the time of death. This is because the body has been the basis of the I, or misconceptions of the self, the root of all disturbing emotions, wherever we have been born in all the six realms of existence. And being attached to the body, we have indulged in the ten unwholesome deeds, the five boundless actions, and other deleterious behavior in order to obtain food, clothing, and other possessions to meet our own selfish ends. Consequently, we are submerged in the unending suffering of cyclic existence in general and the unbearable pains of inferior rebirths in particular. As the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life says, whoever is attached to this body is frightened by even small things, who would not despise as his enemy a body which gives rise to such fear. Wishing to find a means to relieve this body's hunger, thirst and sickness, you kill birds, fish and deer, and loiter by the roadside to rob others. If for the sake of profit and comfort you will even kill your father and mother and misappropriate offerings to the three jewels, you will burn in the most severe hell. What wise man would desire protect and coddle this body? Who would not scorn it and regard it as an enemy? Namkarpal goes on, So we should make a strong determination not to adopt such an inferior body, the product of actions and disturbing emotions, in the future, but to let the reality of the mind, its lack of inherent existence, rest in the perfect body of truth. I'm not so sure that we could, should scorn our body and regard it as an enemy, but certainly we can regard it with a lot less attachment than we usually do. But now we've run out of time, 
so we will continue with the other four powers at death time next time. Please dedicate any positive energy we've accumulated with the program today to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. I'm very happy that you joined us today and I hope you will do so again for the next program. Thank you and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.